And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, March 1st, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, a longtime procurement executive gets White House recognition. Plus, fraud tallies from pandemic spending just keep piling up. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Veterans Affairs Department sees increased hiring and decreased attrition as positive signs. It can keep up with demand on its health care workforce. VA's work rose thanks to the PACT Act, which addresses veteran exposure to burn pits. The Veterans Health Administration expects to meet its hiring goal this fiscal year and beyond. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins me with the latest. And Jory, give us a progress report. How many do they have to hire? I know they're going crazy with getting people in there, aren't they? They're going full steam ahead on that hiring initiative. But the good news is they are seeing progress on that front. What we have seen from VHA to date is that they have hired more than 18,000 new employees so far in fiscal 2023. Now, give some context to that. They're looking to hire 52,000 new employees this fiscal year. And what this comes out to be, I mean, obviously, some of those hires are going to be replacing people who leave the agency, retire from the agency. What really needs to happen at the end of the day is that the VHA sees a 3% increase in its staffing by the end of the fiscal year. So far, they've gotten to a 2.1% increase. And in terms of the magnitude here, we're looking at currently a VHA workforce of 388,000 employees. So all this said, the hiring side looks good. The attrition rate side of things is looking good. BHA was going through a lot of employees for a while. What we've heard from Undersecretary of Health Sharif El-Nahal is that if the attrition rate keeps looking good, VHA is going to exceed its hiring goals for this year. We are on pace to not only meet that goal, but exceed it for the fiscal year. And we do believe we still have to complete about 52,000 new hires to be able to do that. Although if we keep up our retention, as we have in the first quarter, first four months, I should say, then we may not even have to hire that many people. And what are they actually doing to get these people in and hiring them, Jory? Well, they're, of course, seeing a higher workload under the PACT Act, but the PACT Act is also giving VHA new hiring authorities and new incentives to get people in the door in the first place. And they're acting now on those authorities and trying to get the maximum benefit of those authorities. Uh, Things that the VHA is able to do now is offer more student loan repayment incentives, relocation and retention incentives. It could also do things like just hire more housekeepers, raising or eliminating caps on housekeepers that previously were in place because VHA needs everyone along the spectrum. They need people who work in food service. They also need people who are nurses and doctors treating the patients that come in. One other thing VHA is doing is that they are proactively hiring for positions that are not currently vacant, but keeping that churn of qualified applications in flux. And so when those positions do open up, they have people ready to go to fill when that happens. When you speak with Elna Hall and when he was giving this presentation, I mean, what is it they're looking at long term? How do they plan to keep the agency that big for as long as they have to keep it that big? Do they've got a vision for long-term solution to hiring? Well, a big piece of this sustained hiring they're going to have to do over several years is to build up its human resources workforce. What they've said time and again is hire the hirers, 
people who understand where the needs are, where the applicants are, and what they can do to minimize the gap between those two. And so one thing that VHA is currently doing is going to every area, every veterans integrated service network, and reduce the time to hire by about 10% for each one of those, because that is still a long period of time that applicants have to wait for to get in the door. And what else are they doing to improve HR then? Because Elna Hall, as you mentioned, needs more hirers of the hirers. Yeah, well, one issue there is that one big initiative for VA under the Trump administration was centralizing a lot of the HR functions that happened, going from that function existing at each individual medical center to those vision levels. So bringing everything under one roof, so to speak, what this current administration for the VA is saying is that that centralization brought a lot of employees together in HR that had never worked together before. And what Elna Hall says is the real problem is it created more handoffs, more steps to bring people on board, which is, as he says, a real problem. And whenever you introduce handoffs into any process, there's a chance that that process will not be fulfilled in a timely way or in a reliable way. And so we're seeing that phenomenon already. Well, hopefully that won't happen for those 53,000 people they need to hire this year. And speaking of centralizing, you know, the Visions all had their own instances of Vista for so many decades. Now there is a single electronic health record. Did Elna Hall have an update for that ongoing saga? Well, the plan at this point is that the VHA was going to resume the rollout of this new Cerner Oracle EHR this summer. But what we have seen at this point is that one of the scheduled go lives is postponed yet again. This has been a familiar refrain with the EHR. What we're talking about here is the medical center in Ann Arbor, Michigan. They were supposed to go live in July of this year. What we're looking at now is that they may now go live in late 2023 or early 2024. And the reason why every go live postponement has its own reason behind it. And what this is, is that Ann Arbor, aside from being a medical facility, is also a research facility. And so what they didn't want to risk with this go live is the agency's research grants being put at risk if things would go wrong in this go live as they have in the past. We don't want to do that, run the risk of that in our organization, because we want our faculty to remain at VA and to be able to pursue not only clinical care, but a major part of their careers, which is research. So they really don't trust these implementations if because of research purposes and not medical service to patients purposes, they are postponing that rollout maybe by more than a year from the original date. I think a better way to think of it is that where the EHR has gone live in the past have been smaller facilities and there have been complications with those smaller facilities. What VA really wants to make sure is ironed out is go live for bigger, more complex facilities. And Ann Arbor is just that kind of bigger, more complex facility. So that's the primary reason at this point for the pause in that go live. Well, you know, Ann Arbor is the home of the University of Michigan, and I imagine they've got a pretty big medical research program going. I'll bet you there's crosstalk between those two. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, fraud tallies from pandemic spending. They just keep piling up. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. 
The federal unemployment insurance program has been rife with fraud for decades. But Labor Department programs created for pandemic relief spawned so much new fraud, the department is opening 100 new investigative cases every week. We get details from the director of the Forensic Audits and Investigative Service at the Government Accountability Office, Sato Bagdoyan. And Sato, it seems like we're having you for the weekly fraud report these days. That's right, Tom. Thanks for having me back. Happy to oblige. And we could admire the number. I think it's $60 billion so far in fraud under the pandemic programs. But really, I think the important question is, what is the essential mechanism to prevent fraud that seemingly was not in place for a long time before the pandemic? Now, the pandemic just gave new Petri dishes to the same bacteria. Exactly right. Yes. Uh, the estimate we have is a lower bound estimate, over $60 billion. We are, in fact, working on an updated one, also adding an upper bound. So just for context for your listeners. And yes, neither the Labor Department nor the states were prepared for what they encountered once the pandemic kicked in and the programs began dispensing assistance. They didn't have any of the fundamentals in fraud risk management. They hadn't done any assessments. They didn't have a strategy. What few controls there were, were turned off essentially to get the money out quickly under pressure of claims and political leaders and others. So it was a perfect storm basically of what not to do in these circumstances. And you've in the report, laid out some illustrative examples of fraud cases for unemployment insurance, and they all seem to have phony identities at the heart of it. And it seems like that's where efforts should be concentrated is to somehow verify people are who they say they are. That's right. That is a fundamental fraud risk management control. Identity verification triggers everything else that follows, the eligibility determination, the amount of the benefit to be paid, and also the duration of that benefit. So it is absolutely the first foremost control to help manage fraud risk. Now, this is a program typical of these types of programs where it is federal dollars allocated to states to disperse, correct? Well, actually, unemployment insurance is funded through state withholdings. In the pandemic, there was additional federal funding that was provided to enhance benefits for certain durations. So at its essence, this is a federal-state partnership, but the funding burden in normal times lies with the states. Right. So it's not really necessarily a federal concern for the fraud levels prior to the pandemic? Well, it should be a federal concern because the Labor Department has, at at a minimum, nominal oversight over the program. So labor is not absolved uh, of its responsibility. In fact, they were latecomers to the game after fraud became prevalent. Uh, There was pressure for labor to act. Uh, They did take some steps here and there. But those steps were reactive, they were ad hoc, they were not strategically organized and targeted at prioritized risks. All the fundamentals of fraud risk management, really none of them were in place. All right. So just to clarify then, prior programs that have been going for many, many years, state withholdings with DOL oversight. In the case of the pandemic unemployment insurance programs, that was congressional appropriations as part of all the pandemic spending that was rushed out. Yes. Right. That's the gist of it. Correct. Okay. So besides the ability to 
identify people? Is that the fundamental thing that's missing from these programs is simply verification of ID? Right. Yeah, that is part of it, certainly. But the overall fraud risk management structure, the capacity, if you will, is just not there. It hasn't been there. We made recommendations to that effect back in October of 2021 as part of our initial deep dive into unemployment insurance fraud risk. We made a number of recommendations to labor and 16 plus months hence, they have yet to act decisively. They have told us they are taking some action, but we don't know what the nature of those actions are. We have no insight whether they're the right ones, they're being done in the right sequence, uh, because it's a very deliberate process. You can't do certain things before other things happen and so on. We're speaking with Seto Bagdoyan, Director of the Forensic Audits and Investigative Service at the GAO. Yes, you made 19 recommendations. And outside of the verification of ID, what are some of the other basics that have to be in place there? Yes, there are the basics, as you reference. Uh, First, you basically have to have a dedicated entity, some unit within labor, for example, that assumes the responsibility to build the capacity for fraud risk management. That is a fundamental. And then you go do fraud risk assessments. You develop a profile of risks, which is essentially the DNA of each risk. And then you feed into an anti-fraud strategy. You execute that. And part of the strategy is the sequencing of controls to verify identity, as I mentioned, establish eligibility, determine the amount to be paid, and the duration for which that amount will be paid. And is there any mechanism elsewhere in the government that labor could learn from? I'm thinking maybe CMS. I mean, they all have fraud. It's a matter of degree. And if you have 1%, that's the spillover you're going to get. Even though the numbers look big, it's still a small percentage. Social Security, I mean, there's a dozen big programs like that. There are big ticket programs. You're absolutely right. Many of them are still not where they need to be. Uh, CMS, uh, Center for Program Integrity, for example, has responded generally well to our recommendations over the years. So they are on the right track. And then another one, a much smaller entity, the Export-Import Bank of the United States, they really take this very seriously. And they've made considerable progress over the last three or four years of our reporting on their activities. And we have referred other agencies to them sort of a standard setter, if you will, for how to do fraud risk management reasonably well. We're not looking for an absolute standard here. We're looking for a reasonable standard. Right. So getting back to the number of $60 billion in unemployment insurance fraud from the pandemic, those programs alone, what percentage does that represent? And do you have any sense of what your upper limit might be? Because that's what it usually ends up being. Right. So the over 60 billion number represents roughly between 7 to 8%, if my math is correct, of the total spend. We suspect the upper bound by definition will be higher. We are working on it diligently. We just obtained some more data from the Department of Labor that my methodologist colleagues, including the chief statistician, Jared Smith, And his team will be working diligently to create a new updated estimate that has a lower bound and an upper bound. And hopefully that will grab people's attention as to the extent of the problem that sets the stage for what needs to be done. Labor acting 
swiftly and decisively getting the states involved because, as I mentioned earlier, and you correctly pointed out, this is a federal-state partnership. Yes, and a week ago or so, your colleague, Rebecca Shea, appeared on the show. She made a comment that was kind of interesting. We weren't talking about unemployment insurance, but other pandemic relief programs that also had high levels of fraud. She said the tough thing about this, in some ways, is that it was maybe to a small degree, Russian gang hackers or Chinese or whatever the case might be. But mostly it was just Americans seeing an opportunity. And that was kind of a heartbreaking aspect of it. When it comes to unemployment insurance, that's almost all people here in the country just jumping in because they can get away with it. Well, there was a lot of money put out there very quickly with minimal controls. So what you ended up is attracting Anyone who had an inkling to take some of that money for themselves, then, of course, again, the the large amounts attracted international organized crime or freelancers anywhere from Russia, China, Nigeria, the usual suspect hotspots of just fraud criminality in general. And by the way, the Labor Department, as your report states, is opening 100 cases a week to investigate instances of fraud. So they're in heavy duty, find, prosecute and clawback mode. But that only yields a small percentage, correct, of what it is that went out in the first place? Yeah, that's right. That's the Office of Inspector General, uh, Mr. Turner and his team. They are opening hundreds of cases as we speak. They probably have a backlog they're working through. But the clawback aspect of this is really just noise. You're not going to recover that money. Once it's gone, it's gone. These cases take a long time to adjudicate, and they're very complicated. You have to prove intent, and you have to pick your battles. You can't do everything. So that really underscores the need to be preventative, to be front-loaded, to manage this as best as you can so that you are not arguing about how bad the problem is at the tail end and then further pursuing you know, restitution or whatever else the adjudicative process yields. So yeah, it's just imperative that you do this right up front, uh, even if it slows things down, which is the main concern of agencies is, uh, yeah, we got to get the money out. If we lose some, that's the cost of doing business. Wow, what a cost. Seto Bagdoyan is Director of the Forensic Audits and Investigative Service at the GAO. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you, Tom. Have a good day. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the Air Force presses its advantage in a controversial intellectual property dispute. But first, a longtime procurement executive gets White House recognition. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. If the General Services Administration is at the heart of much of federal procurement, my next guest is at the center of the GSA. He's the agency's senior procurement executive and chairman of the U.S. Ability One Commission, and now he's a presidential rank award winner. As part of this week's series of rank award winners, Jeffrey Kosas joins me now. Jeff, good to have you back. I'm delighted to be here, Tom. Thank you so much. And you really have been at the heart of a lot of GSA's procurement and vehicle work over the years, a kind of ceaseless effort. I recall your work on the general schedules, the plain old 
venerable GS system, which is really quite different from what it was many years ago. Talk about your own career highlights. What do you think is the best stuff? Tom, upon graduating college, I figured, you know, there's no better place than D.C. for a history and political science major. Came down here, quickly received a job from GSA, and it was a management development program in acquisition. Let me use that as the chance to tell what I like to think of as my procurement origin story. It's a few years later. I return from paternity leave following the birth of my first child and find out I've been moved to a new job. I was now the contracting officer on GSA's contract with the airlines, the official travel contracts city pair program. So pictured, it's first day back. Director calls me in the office. He tells me I've got this new job. He hands me a stack of protests to answer. He tells me that the contract <laughs> specialist on the team has been working 80 hours a week for six months and would be off for a while. Oh, and by the way, Jeff, we're five months behind in the next contracts, annual contracts at that. So here I am. I'm adjusting to the new baby, the new job. I immediately catch cold. So if you picture it, it's 2 a.m. I'm walking the house with this colicky baby. I'm talking to him all about the protests and about how we're going to answer these protests. Well, that's one way to raise the next generation, I suppose, is to kind of inculcate them early. Too early, can we? By the way, what year was that? Because uh, the airline industry has changed itself so much since those days. Uh, It has changed immensely. This is uh, the mid-1990s. You know, maybe it's the high fever, but I have three thoughts uh, from this experience. And those are thoughts that I've really built my career around ever since. First, we need to take care of the acquisition workforce. We need smart, effective buying strategies that are using and leveraging automation and communication. In this case, had we simply talked to the airlines, we wouldn't be dealing with these protests. We needed helpful, productive industry relationships. And ever since, as I've moved between operation and policy jobs, those are the thoughts I kept in mind. And I'd suggest ultimately, that's what led me into the role as GSA's senior procurement exec. And there, I ended up as GSA's representative to the Ability One Commission, the small federal agency that provides job opportunities for people who are blind or have significant disabilities. And there, my fellow members elected me as commission chair. Wow. So you have done a lot of things. But I think central to this is the idea that procurement and acquisition sound maybe to the generalized ear as really dull, arcane things is actually a fascinating and dynamic type of activity, aren't they? Definitely. I had no idea that I would had such a love and interest in acquisition, but upon entering GSA and starting to see just how much acquisition is behind everything else, how much it actually makes the federal government run and operate, that brought that out for me. And over the course of my career, I look how much government has changed. Over the last three and a half decades, the mission of what we asked the government to do, that has grown immensely. But the size of the federal workforce, that has not changed. So How do we make that up? It is with our federal contractors. And so I've always found acquisition is at the center of so many other issues off stage, but making everything else work. And have you found this is something another acquisition executive mentioned to me a couple of months ago, something I didn't realize is that to business majors, people coming out at the collegiate level, federal acquisition and federal procurement are actually attractive fields to them. Very definitely. Uh, We have a lot of business majors who move into that. Uh, uh, Until recently, uh, there was a statute requiring uh, folks had to have a degree or at least 24 semester hours of that degree in business-related disciplines. But I'd also suggest it's a really important field for people who study liberal arts, uh, people who have strong writing skills. 
because acquisition, it's all about telling the story. It's all about documentation. It's all about clarity in communication. We're speaking with Jeffrey Kosis. He is the senior procurement executive at the General Services Administration and a recent presidential rank award winner. And getting back to the GS schedule, this is something that anyone who's ever sold to the government in any capacity has touched on at some point in their career. And you oversaw a major revision of the GS multiple award schedule system a few years back. Maybe just review that briefly for us. Absolutely. The schedules, for those who are not familiar with it, they're really the entryway for business interested in contracting with the federal government. It covers uh, tens of millions of companies, products, services, and solutions. So central to the schedules is the whole pricing structure. The schedules are based on the idea that uh, we are offering uh, top-notch prices for the products and services available. Historically, we have used a regulatory approach to get those good prices. It's called the commercial sales practice. They're detailed disclosure statements where companies report out all about their pricing, who they charged, how much, and why. And a clause called the price reduction clause. Hey, if somebody gets a better deal than we get the government, we're going to come back and lower their price. Uh, that was a model built in the 1980s, built in a pre-internet age. It was built at a time when the schedules were all about products from manufacturers. Well, what we did is say, in today's world, data is king. We've got to be able to use data instead of regulation to drive good pricing. You know, just as folks carry their phone and they can check if something's a good deal, we figured, you know, transactional data is going to be the key. So we went through the rulemaking process, we developed a new clause, and we ran a multi-year pilot to say, can we both make the schedule easier to use, easier to get on, less regulatory uh, burden, but uh, more effective, better pricing through the use of data. And over the course of a multi-year pilot, we found out that, yes, indeed, we can produce better results, less expense by relying on market forces, not on regulation, to drive the schedules. And the schedules then have remained relevant and also a really big piece of the federal procurement dollar goes through the schedules even to this day with all of the competing GWACs and all of the many different types of task order vehicles out there. Absolutely. Uh, we see in the neighborhood of uh, $30 billion plus per year going through the schedules program. It remains the best source for our small business, small disadvantaged business. And it continues to uh, be a tremendous value for federal agencies because of the time it saves, because of the efficiency in getting to the solutions that they need. All right. So tell us a little bit more about Ability One. What's been the big change there? That's another older program that seems to evolve as times change. Ability One uh, is the primary uh, means by which, through contracts, we create jobs for people who are blind or have uh, significant disabilities. Our Ability One program last year uh, created nearly uh, 38,000 jobs for uh, our target population. We have been very much focused on modernization at the commission. Within the last uh, several months, we updated uh, and phased out the use of subminimum wages. For decades, there was what's called a subminimum wage. That's what it sounds like, a wage below the minimum wage for workers uh, who have disabilities. We thought that that was really an outdated relic, and we went through the regulatory process to uh, eliminate that. We created a network of what we called Ability One representatives in 21 federal agencies, act as internal champions. If you think about what does a small business specialist do for a small business program, that's what the Ability One representatives do for the Ability One program. And so it sounds like something you're pretty proud of being associated with. 
Absolutely. Not a role I expected to end up in, but I have found it so rewarding and so valuable and thrilled to have had that opportunity. And as we speak, you are in the office this particular day and because you're wearing a suit and tie. That's the tip-off, isn't it? That's the tip-off. But in reality, you're only there a couple days or maybe one day a week like so many federal office types of employees. Has the telework made things better, worse, the same? GSA has been involved at the center of telework for so many years also. I would suggest all of the above. Remote work has been fabulous in that it gives us the ability to hire the best person anywhere in the country for a job. It lets us keep our amazingly talented employees as our family circumstances lead them to relocate across the country. It's also created some incredible challenges, challenges about how do you bring employees into a culture? How do you ensure that they become part of the organization, that we get the right training, the right messaging, that we form relationships? So it's an incredible management challenge, but it also gives so much flexibility and opportunities to bring high-performing people into our federal agencies. And what's your next big challenge, do you think? I don't think you're quite ready to hang it up here. Not quite yet. I'm very focused at the moment on issues involving the acquisition workforce. Within the last several days, the Office of Federal Procurement Policy updated the uh, curriculum for acquisition professionals, a hugely uh, needed move from one that we can't say enough good things about. It takes us to a uh, modern commercial curriculum. And so I'm now working closely with my uh, Chico, uh, Tracy Martini, trying to say, okay, how do we use this as the opportunity to uh, address and to refill the talent pipeline? Because this will open the door for us to recruit, not just people who have worked in government, but it opens the door to us for people who know contracting from the industry standpoint, from state and local government, and from the nonprofit sector. In other words, if you can get the right people and give them the right information and let them go, procurement acquisition will take care of itself. Really well said. Jeffrey Kosas is Senior Procurement Executive at the General Services Administration and a recent Presidential Rank Award winner. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, John. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. And tomorrow we hear from a woman serving in national security for decades. Take the Federal Drive wherever you go. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the Air Force presses its advantage in a controversial intellectual property dispute. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Can the Defense Department help itself to commercial intellectual property, even stuff not developed with federal dollars? Well, yes, it can, as a matter of fact, at least judging from a recent case before the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals. It's a warning to contractors. Haynes Boone partner Dan Ramish joins me now with the details. And this is a case that uh, touches on a long-running nerve, Dan. Tell us more what happened here. Sure, Tom. So uh, the case is Flight Safety International Incorporated, uh, an appeal at the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals. And this is actually an unusual dispute between the United States government and a subcontractor, uh, Flight Safety. Flight Safety was providing uh, commercial technology under a subcontract, uh, and it, it, its specific technology was a visual system replacement for C-5 weapon system trainers. And so nothing that it, flew, but this was to be used in a training situation on the ground. And this was displays for pilots, I guess, to be able to learn how to fly that big whale safely. 
Right, exactly. And and so it's not uncommon for military technology to incorporate uh, commercial components, uh, and generally that's more cost-effective uh, for the government. So it's favorable, viewed favorably. Uh, the Federal Acquisition and Streamlining Act encouraged the use of incorporating commercial technologies. And, and also, in this day and age, commercial technology is vitally important for national security. DOD wants the best cutting-edge technology that the commercial world has to offer. In this case, uh, Flight Safety developed this product under a subcontract for the Air Force, and the Air Force looked at drawings that were submitted related to this product and challenged the contractor's markings on the drawings. Right, uh, the so drawings, the, uh, that's, the, that's the key thing here. They didn't like the markings because they seem to be proprietary or designate them as proprietary. So the Air Force is the one that brought the case forward? Yes, that's right. It was a, a validation challenge. There was a final decision issued by the Air Force contracting officer who looked at the restrictive legends on these drawings that were submitted related to this visual system replacement uh, and said that the government had different rights from what the legends reflected. The contractor had said, these are proprietary. We developed them with private funds and therefore you know, you get a, a very limited license under the applicable contract clause, government. Back off. This is our stuff. Sure. For all we know, this company might have developed these drawings and these capabilities for the uh, Dreamliner or something. Sure, sure. Or other commercial customers. Got it. All uh, right. And the government notably didn't argue with that. They they didn't contest that the subcontractor had used its own money or private funds to develop uh, the drawings or the technology associated with the drawings. What they argued was there was a special exception in the statute and in the clause that says if data is needed for operation, maintenance, installation, or training, then the government gets a unrestricted rights. And there, there is an exception to the exception. <laughs> Whenever it comes to uh, the government intellectual property licensing scheme, it's very complicated and there are a lot of moving parts. So even if data is necessary for the government to maintain what it's buying, if it's detailed manufacturing or process data, the government gets the data but still has the limited license. Right. But if it's operations, maintenance, installation or training, commonly known as omit, then mm -hmm. the government does have that right to use in an unlimited way. So as long as it's not related to the contractor's secret sauce, that's the exception to the exception, detailed manufacturing and process data. Right. So if it's needed for training and for maintenance, but it doesn't get into the manufacturing processes, the secret sauce of the contractor or subcontractor, then the government gets an unrestricted rights license. And that's what they were arguing here. We need this to maintain the equipment uh, over the long haul. And under the you know rights scheme that's in the contract and in the regulations, we get unrestricted rights. And actually, an interesting feature of this particular case, they settled the issue of the license that the government got in this these drawings. The contractor conceded through settlement that the government was entitled to an unrestricted rights license. And normally, you would, you would fight over whether this data was really needed for operation, maintenance, installation, or training, and whether it was detailed manufacturing or process data. But settlement eliminated that issue. All right. What did the Contract Board of Appeals say? They sided with whom? So the, the Armed Services Board sided with the government. 
and they said essentially that the government could challenge the legends that the contractor put on its drawings and that the legends that the contractor put on the drawings weren't consistent with the government's license. We're speaking with Dan Ramish. He's a partner at Haynes Boone. All right, so it seems cut and dried. If there was a statutory carve-out for omit data, then the government, some sharp-eyed guy in the Air Force, saw that and prevailed. And this, though, has a long history of dispute, both the omit data being statutorily protected, if you will, or carved out, omitted, from what the government can't do normally with intellectual property. I mean, there's a history to this whole issue, isn't there? There has been a lot of back and forth and debate within DOD and on the Hill about how to deal with commercial contractors because there's kind of a tension between two really big principles when it comes to the government intellectual property. One of those principles is the government recognizes the need for cutting-edge commercial technology and that intellectual property is important to commercial companies. That's how they distinguish themselves and their products. And it's one of the biggest concerns that non-traditional defense contractors have in looking at the defense market. Say, is the government going to insist on getting, you know, the rights in to, you know, my uh, proprietary information? So DOD recognizes that there has to be some respect for proprietary rights of contractors or people just won't do business with the federal government. Sure. So there's really a secondary issue, or you could look at this two ways. One is the use in an unrestricted way by the government, but that doesn't let the government redistribute it freely to other people. So therefore, whatever use the government gets it pays for, it just might be paying for less than what a commercial client would pay for for the same intellectual property. Fair way to put it? Yeah. The Well, so the, the government's concern in, in negotiating this is it wants, you know, DOD wants rights to be able to maintain what it's buying over the long haul and not have to go back to the seller and have it maintained by third parties. So OMIT data is really the government's attempt to make sure that it's able to use what it's buying from uh, from contractors, that including commercial contractors. But there are real tensions between respecting the contractor's rights and making sure that the government gets the rights that it needs. So maybe the answer for contractors then is to go into this with a pricing scheme that compensates them for the way their property is actually going to be used. Certainly contractors, and after this decision, contractors and subcontractors doing business with DOD have to look very carefully at what documents they're providing to the government and what rights the government is, is going to insist on. And there's there's greater exposure than folks would have thought. And the Section 809 panel of a few years back that proposed three volumes, three or four volumes of defense procurement reforms, this elimination of the OMIT exception was something that they proposed, wasn't it? That's right. So the 809 panel was looking at how DOD buys intellectual property, specifically commercial intellectual property. And they identified that although there's this policy in the FAR that says the government will only buy the intellectual property rights that commercial contractors provide in the commercial marketplace and will only deliver what they deliver in the commercial marketplace, DOD has these exceptions that deviate from that general practice in the FAR. So the DFARs includes OMIT and a few other exceptions for types of data that contractors are required to give up 
even though they don't provide it to their commercial customers. The 809 panel, in looking at that, said this is a disincentive for contractors to participate in the defense market. And DOD's rights are adequately protected by the rest of the DFARS. This is really overreach, and DOD should engage like any other private contractual party and negotiate for those rights if it wants them and not claim them by default. And so they proposed getting rid of those exceptions. But nevertheless, the exceptions persist, to use the modern parlance. Indeed, they do. If you're uh, waiting on Congress to fix your problems, you may be waiting a long time. Procurement attorney Dan Ramish is a partner at Haynes Boone. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. Really appreciate it. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, some easy things the government could do to remind people why they should stick around. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. Employee retention is a hot topic for many agencies. Agencies have made positive steps toward keeping people, but there are a few things they could still do. Financial coach and retired federal manager Abe Grungold joins me now with what those might be. And Abe, as a recent retiree, you went to the full extent of a federal career a couple of years ago. But uh, that idea of retention, they are talking about this. This is huge for OPM and for the agencies themselves. What do you think they're doing well? Let's start there. Tom, thank you for having me on the show today. And yes, the government has done some good things in the area of employee retention but they seem to only focus on certain employee classifications, such as parity pay for the uh, Office of Controller employees and parity pay for the Securities and Exchange Commission employees, because these employees have certain skills that they have learned in their agency, and they tend to be recruited away to the private sector. So, these agencies have instituted parity pay to keep them. And another employee group, the TSAs, employees who are going to be getting an increase in salary. Yes. And uh, I don't know what the types of commensurate jobs might exist outside of government for transportation security officers, although they do have a lot of psychological skill and observational skills, so it may not be directly comparable, but I think they have skills that are definitely usable. But for Office of the Comptroller and the SEC, I mean, there are countless jobs across the government, everybody at Veterans Affairs, nurses, doctors, medical practitioners of all sorts, schedulers, whose skills are in demand externally. So it seems like a pretty limited group for parity pay. Yes. Well, also in the VA, some of the nurses have been getting increase in salaries as well as they're trying to give physicians an increase in salary. But just going back to TSA, the TSA employees, there has been about 20% in turnover rate because TSA employees earn a beginning salary of forty to fifty thousand dollars, and in those cities like San Francisco and New York, a TSA employee just can't live on that low salary. So there is a high turnover in certain airports across the country. 
Yes, in fact, I think one of the other benefits they have received in recent years is more regularity in their shifts. So if they want to work a second job, I think early on the agency considered it a security concern if they didn't move people around so they didn't have predictable shifts, which could mean predictable encounters with the same travelers over and over. I think that's what the theory was. But, you know, if you don't know what your shifts are going to be in a given week, it's pretty hard to plan that side job to augment your income. Yes. Also regarding hours during the work week, many agencies have instituted the 410 schedule and the 549 schedule where it gives them a day or two days off every pay period. That was a benefit that I really enjoyed as a federal employee. And in my last five years with the government, I was teleworking with my agency. Now, due to the pandemic, the government was trying to put a telework policy in every agency that they could for those employees who could work telework. Obviously, you can't have postal carriers teleworking or VA nurses or VA doctors. They have to be in the hospital and postal employees have to deliver the mail. But as the pandemic ended, a lot of employees did not want to return to work. So it was good that the government has tried to salvage this telework policy, but they still could do better with certain areas with respect to benefits. Sure. And we'll get to that in a moment. We're speaking with Abe Grungold. He's a financial coach and retired federal manager. And before we get to that, I was going to say that that idea of four by 10, you know, the four day work week, but 10 hours. So the employer, the government is still getting its 40 hours. That is very popular. And you're starting to hear the four-day work week creep out into state level and even in some industries. The ramifications are complicated, and you can see where it could help and hurt different areas like customer service. But it seems to be gaining ground. Yes. I worked long double shifts and 24-hour shifts when I worked in the private sector in a hospital. So when I came into the government, and they brought out the, they called it flexible schedule. They brought that out in the 90s. And that was a very attractive benefit for every employee, including managers. You get one day off or two days off every pay period. It's 26 to 52 extra days off a year. So it's a wonderful benefit for employees. Sure. And I would just say, uh, as a young reporter, I work something called a split shift. <laughs> I don't think anyone would ever recommend that. That's only for the very young and naive, let's put it that way. All right. So what are some things you think the government could do on the benefits side, as you mentioned, to enhance that idea of retention? Well, the key to retaining employees is the government needs to educate every federal employee about their benefits to show them that their benefits are more valuable than if you were to go out in the private sector. My top three benefits that I'd like to discuss, one is the federal health benefits, FEHB. The second is the Fegley life insurance benefit. And the third is the thrift savings plan, the TSP. That is the most important benefit of all, and that's why I was saving that for last. Well, I would say that the defined pension benefit, which FERS employees still have, in addition to the TSP, is something 
that's tremendous, even though it's not as big as the old civil service retirement system pension of years ago. Most of those people are sort of passing out of the uh, of the phase here. But besides the TSP, the defined benefit pension, that's pretty darn good, too. Well, the reason I didn't mention the FERS annuity is you still have to put in a considerable number of years in order to obtain that. Uh-huh. But if you start saving in your TSP early on, you're going to immediately see the immediate positive things of that benefit, which is the thrift savings plan. First of all, the health benefits. The government offers different plans where in the private sector, you may get only a few choices. Now, the government is also paying the lion's share of the premium. So even when a federal employee When they are able to retire, they would only pay the same premium as if they were still working. But the thing that the government needs to educate employees on is that they need to understand the mechanics of their plan. They need to understand what benefits are provided, co-payments, co-insurance, out-of-pocket, out-of-pocket catastrophic loss. They need to understand every aspect of their health plan because they only seem to know it when they get ill or something occurs in their life. So it's a very important benefit. The uh, other very important benefit that the government provides its employees and they need to educate them on is the life insurance. Because in the private sector, employees usually have to fill out a questionnaire. They have to take a physical They need to do some laboratory or medical testing. But in the government, they don't have to do that. They're automatically eligible and enrolled in the Fegley life insurance policy. And this is a wonderful benefit because you are able to protect your beneficiaries from any debt in the event something happens to you. And the other thing to consider, too, just going back to the FEHB for a moment, is that those choices are available to you in retirement, and your corporate plan no longer is once you retire. Yes. Every federal employee, whether they're active or a retiree, during open season, they can change their health plan. So they're able to see the difference from one plan to another. They're able to see all the premiums, and they can make a very wise choice in those circumstances. And just a word about the TSP, because the current travails of the website, and by the way, just in recent days, they have been able to fix some of the functions that people were complaining about, but that's a short-term issue, we presume. Over the long term, the TSP, functionally, like any other IRA, what, in your opinion, makes the TSP attractive relative to what other plans are available for IRAs? Well, the real key point to the TSP is it's not exactly an IRA. It's a 401k plan. And you are allowed to put in to the maximum of what the IRS allows. But the government is giving you a 5% match. That is the most critical part of the TSP because In the private sector, yes, there are companies that have 401k plans, but they are not providing any type of match because they can't afford to do it. So in the government, in the entire history of the TSP, 
and I've been a participant for 35 years, I've always received that 5% match. It's never changed. And that is a 5% raise for every employee, and they must take advantage of that. And the government needs to educate employees about this because I have clients who do not contribute 5% in order to get the 5% matching. Yeah, and I think that's really an important point to be made, especially to people early in their careers, because they're looking at the debates going around Social Security and the predictions for Social Security insolvency. Lord knows what the fix, if any, will be for all of that. So I think increasingly young people maybe are getting the idea, I better pack my own parachute here. Yeah, the employees really have the responsibility to learn their benefits. But if the government wants to try to retain these employees, they need to educate them on how important their benefits are, especially the TSP. Because as a TSP member, if you put in a 20 to 30 year career, you have the potential of being a TSP millionaire. And that is very important, very important. Right. It's actually not that difficult to get to that level over time if you're consistent and take that 5% match. It is not difficult. And really, if you are investing aggressively with your TSP, you can become a TSP billionaire if you make the 5% contribution, receive the 5% match, invest aggressively, and at the end of 30 years, there's a very likely chance you're going to be a TSP millionaire. It all depends on the market, too, but it's a very good chance. Abe Grungold is a financial coach and retired federal manager. As always, thanks so much. Thank you for having me, Tom. Have a good day. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. The Social Security Administration is getting a boost from the Technology Modernization Fund to secure its computer systems. The SSA project is part of a trio of recent TMF awards focused on cyber. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the latest. And Justin, give us the details of these latest approvals. Yeah, the TMF made three new investments in mid-February. These are projects for the SSA, uh, the Treasury Department, and the U.S. Agency for Global Media. Let's start with the Social Security Administration Award. That will help accelerate the adoption of multi-factor authentication across its computers. And, of course, that will help reduce the risk of employee credentials being stolen uh, when it comes to an agency that pours out millions and billions of benefits in Social Security dollars, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, and the TMF website says there's some pretty significant legacy authentication protocols on internal SSA systems. There's some technical debt there. So this will help really get those computers up to speed and get them on phishing-resistant multi-factor authentication. So that's a big, big one for the SSA. Yes, there's about 30 years of technical debt there. And Treasury Department, what's their big TMF gain? So they're getting $11 million from the TMF to bring the Treasury Foreign Intelligence Network into the cloud. Uh, This network was established back in 2006. It's used to share classified intelligence with other agencies, but it's a locally hosted network that is, according to the TMF, costly to maintain and has suffered service disruptions due to power outages on the local grid. So this will bring the TFIN, as it's called, into a hybrid cloud. 
And what's interesting about this one is it will make Treasury the first of 18 intelligence agencies to implement a cloud email productivity software solution. So good one there for Treasury. And once again, the dollar values for those awards that went to Treasury and Social Security. So for Social Security, it's $23.3 million for that multi-factor authentication implementation. And then for Treasury, it's $11.1 million for that hybrid cloud project. I can sense a good sharing opportunity here. If Social Security gets two-factor down pat with that $23 million, maybe they can loan their solution to or give their solution to the Interior Department, which has also got a desperate need for, for two-factor. That was the latest GAO report there. And the Agency for Global Media, U.S. Agency for Global Media, operator of Voice of America and many other properties. Yeah, it's getting $6.2 million from the TMF to implement a zero-trust architecture across what is, of course, a global network. You've got five news networks uh, across uh, that cover 410 million people, a lot of journalists in different parts of the world. And according to, to this TMF project description, there's a pretty legacy IT security posture across those journalists and editors who are doing some work in some pretty sketchy areas in, in some cases. And so this zero trust project will help uh, the U.S. Agency for Global Media update its aging infrastructure, have the ability to track devices and correlate devices to individuals, and then implement, again, multi-factor authentication, because that's a pretty big part of zero trust. So that's a good, that's a big one for U.S. Agency for Global Media. It's $6.2 million, but it's a pretty small agency with a pretty big need here for uh, zero trust. And by the way, this is not the first TMF funding to go to zero trust for an agency, is it? Yeah, it's starting to become a bit of a trend. Uh, The U.S. Agency for Global Media is the fifth agency to, uh, or I'm sorry, the sixth agency to get funding from the TMF for Zero Trust. The others are USAID, the Office of Personnel Management, the Education Department, and the General Services Administration. Agencies have until the end of fiscal 2024 to implement a Zero Trust architecture. So obviously, agencies are scrambling to really get to that deadline that's coming up here pretty quickly and looking for funding where they can find it. What's interesting is that a lot of these agencies that are getting funding from the TMF are being asked to share lessons back through a federal agency working group so that they're actually sharing some of the lessons that they're getting out of these uh, this extra funding. Yeah, each time an agency figures something out like this, it should be less expensive for the next agency as it cascades down, I would think. There's a learning curve involved. But clearly, agencies have figured out what it takes to get TMF money, and there are certain abracadabra words like zero trust, I guess. And just give us the update on TMF in totality. There has been a lot of activity in the past couple of years for that billion-dollar fund. And uh, not only did the money go up, but the number of queries from agencies has really risen too, hasn't it? Yeah. TMF has now invested in a total of 38 projects across 22 agencies. 27 of those projects uh, were made with that $1 billion funding uh, line from the American Rescue Plan a couple of years ago. In addition to that $1 billion, the TMF has received about $225 million through the annual appropriations process. And the investments now total about $650 million. So they're about halfway through that total funding at this point. It'll be interesting to see what the Biden administration requests in the TMF this in this fiscal 2024 budget that's coming out this month. Last year, they requested $300 million 
they only got 50 million. Clearly, Congress sees them still working through that billion dollar American Rescue Plan funding. Well, given that the IT budget and it's getting harder to detect exactly what is the IT budget agency by agency because the Exhibit 53s are no longer part of the submission process and budgets on the assumption that IT is ingrained in almost everything agencies do. But presuming that $100 billion is correct, maybe Congress is going to ask, well, why do you need another billion? Another sounds like only 1%. But with $100 billion going to IT, you know, can't they put in two-factor authentication somewhere <laughs> in all that money? Yeah, you, you would you would think so. I think I think uh, obviously uh, it, it's interesting the TMF is sometimes used to accelerate projects that agencies say they can't get off the ground for whatever reason through the regular appropriations and and funding request process. So it'll be interesting to see how that continues and whether they can find a way to use their significant annual appropriations, as you say, to to launch some of these big tech projects. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thanks so much. You got it, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com and get your application in. There's still TMF money. Still to come, fraud tallies from pandemic spending just keep piling up. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. 